The following information is for educational use only and should not be construed as medical advice. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Doc, Not Doctor. In this episode, we're going to focus on morphine. What used to be the Army's analgesic of choice, but currently is only used in TC3 when fentanyl isn't available. I should mention that I use the words opiate and opioid interchangeably, because the differences are unimportant for most practical purposes. Morphine is indicated in patients with moderate to severe pain, but there are contraindications. It shouldn't be given to patients who have or are at risk of developing hypovolemic shock, respiratory distress, or patients with severe or suspected head injuries. An additional contraindication is any patient who is unconscious. That shouldn't have to be mentioned because unconscious patients don't complain of pain, and loss of consciousness is a pretty strong indication of head injury, but it's mentioned in TC3, so I wanted to mention it here. TC3 used to have guidelines for intramuscular morphine, but their current recommendations now only advise to give it intravenously or intraosseously in 5mg doses, with reassessment for additional morphine every 10 minutes. Intravenous and intramuscular morphine both come in concentrations of 2, 4, 5, 8, and 10 mg per milliliter. Intravenous morphine has an additional 15 mg per milliliter formulation. It must be stored in temperatures of 20 to 25 degrees Celsius or 68 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit, and it also needs to be stored away from light. Oral tablets and oral solutions can be stored in a wider range of temperatures from 15 to 30 degrees Celsius which is 59 to 86 degrees Fahrenheit. The tablets come in 15 mg and 30 mg doses, and the oral solution comes in concentrations of 10, 20, and 100 mg per 5 milliliters. As far as I know, the oral tablets and oral solutions are not recommended by the Army. I have not found the recommendation of those inside either TC3 guidelines or the flight medic guidelines. The reason we don't want to give morphine to patients with a known or suspected brain injury is that it has been shown to increase intracranial pressure while decreasing their mean arterial pressure in the rest of the body in a little bit over 50% of patients with head injuries. Something I think is incredibly important that TC3 leaves out of their guidelines when it comes to morphine is something that can actually cause medics who follow their guidelines to kill their patients. The guidelines should emphasize that intravenous morphine needs to be given via a slow IV push, and they don't have any mention of that at all in there. Intravenous administration of morphine faster than 1 mg per minute risks causing chest wall rigidity and temporary loss of respiratory drive. Administering morphine at even half that rate is perfectly acceptable. Patients who receive intravenous morphine should be monitored for respiratory depression over a longer period of time, because the delay in maximum central nervous system effect for intravenous morphine is 30 minutes. Medics and corpsmen who knock out their patient's respiratory drive with administration of morphine may be tempted to grab Narcan and administer that to get the patient's respiratory drive back, and although that isn't a bad idea, I think there's a more appropriate choice, and that's just grabbing a BVM to administer a few artificial ventilations. Just a few squeezes of the bag is pretty likely to give your patient the respiratory drive back, and then you don't have to play the whole game with balancing, morphine, and naloxone to try to get the right dose of each for the correct outcome of the patient. I wouldn't personally feel comfortable administering morphine unless I had naloxone and a BVM available. 
Army flight medics have some additional guidelines for morphine. It can be given for acute or chronic mild to moderate pain, as well as a specific mention of chest pain believed to be cardiac in nature. Contraindications include severe respiratory depression, acute or severe asthma, a diagnosis of paralytic ileus, and of course a previous adverse reaction to morphine. Common adverse reactions include increased intracranial pressure in patients with head trauma, hypotension, exacerbation of bradycardia, respiratory depression, impairment of physical and mental abilities, loss of consciousness, and meiosis, also known as pupil constriction. Meiosis may be present even in dark environments, and this reaction is fairly common with morphine and shouldn't trigger suspicion of TBI or increased ICP without other accompanying symptoms or mechanism of injury. As mentioned earlier, naloxone counteracts the effects of morphine, but it shouldn't be given as long as the patient is breathing and perfusing adequately. Altered mental status and loss of consciousness are not reasons to administer naloxone. For chest pain, adults are given 2-5 mg every 5-15 to 15 minutes, as needed for a maximum dose of 20 mg. For other moderate to severe pain, adults are given 5-10 to 10 mg intramuscular every 20-30 to 30 minutes, as needed, or 2-5 to 5 mg IV every 5-15 to 15 minutes as needed. The flight medic protocols do mention an adult weight-based dose, but I believe the weight-based dose given is a typo, so I don't exactly want to mention it here. Ironically enough, the summary of changes says that they did correct the morphine dose anyways. Morphine shouldn't be given to patients with a systolic blood pressure less than 90 or an oxygen saturation of less than 95%. Keep in mind that shaking or cold skin temperature can cause a pulse oximeter to read low, so use your best judgment on what the patient's actual oxygen saturation is, but always err on the side of caution. As it's in the flight medic protocols, I want to go over morphine and pediatrics, but before I do that, I need to make it abundantly clear that this is the Army's flight medic protocols. It is not from the FDA. A short excerpt from the FDA's fact sheet on morphine specifically says, and I quote, The safety and effectiveness of morphine sulfate injection in pediatric patients below the age of 18 have not been established. Their fact sheets for morphine administration via other routes have similar warnings. Whenever I come across a discrepancy like this, I always like to get guidance from my physician before being in a position to administer it, and I prefer that guidance to be in writing. Anyways, according to the Army Flight Medic Protocols, pediatric patients are given morphine solely as a weight-based dose of between 0.1 and 0.2 mg per kilogram, for a maximum dose of 10 mg at any one time, either IV, IM, or sub-Q. Intravenous morphine must be pushed slowly, and I can't stress that enough. If you push morphine too fast on a pediatric patient, there is a very good chance you will kill them. If you are not confident in your ability to push morphine at the correct speed, don't give it intravenously, either give it IM or sub-Q. The need for additional intravenous morphine can be reassessed every two hours. Pediatric patients can also be given a continuous infusion of morphine at a rate between 10 and 30 micrograms per kilogram per hour. Let's do a dosing example. Say you want to administer 5 milligrams to an adult over 5 minutes, and you have a 10 milligram per milliliter vial. How would you do it? 
Feel free to pause and think about this for yourself for a moment before continuing. While there are multiple right answers, I would take a 10ml syringe, waste half a mil of saline so I only have 9.5ml left, then draw up half a mil of morphine into the syringe, giving 5mg of morphine in a 10ml solution. I would then administer the morphine slow enough that the plunger of the syringe moves only across a 1ml line every 30 seconds. Some fast facts about morphine. Given IM or IV as a bioavailability of 100%, meaning every bit of it eventually gets into the bloodstream. Oral morphine only has a bioavailability of around 20-40% due to metabolic inefficiencies. Its half-life is generally 1.5-2 to two hours, but can be longer in some patients. That includes older patients or unhealthy patients that can get a half-life of up to 4-4.5 to four and a half hours. Some patients may develop a tolerance to morphine and other opioids, which require them to receive higher doses of morphine for similar levels of pain relief. Also keep in mind that there is no ceiling effect on morphine, meaning that there is not a maximum effect of analgesia provided by morphine, but there is also no maximum effect of respiratory depression either. When given intramuscularly, it has an onset of between 5 and 20 minutes. It reaches peak plasma levels between the 5 and 30 minute mark, and the full analgesic effect is around the 1 hour mark. The total useful duration of morphine is between 3 and 4 hours. When given orally, its onset is in between the 20 and 30 minute range, and peak activity is reached between 60 and 90 minutes, and it has a total effective duration of about 3 to 6 hours. If you don't want to remember all that, just know that the fastest routes of administration in order are IV, IM, and PO, and that it'll be effective for between 3 and 6 hours. If you're paying attention, you may find it odd that intravenous morphine has a near-immediate onset, but the time between peak plasma levels and peak analgesia for intramuscular morphine is 30 minutes or more. Initially, it may seem odd that it takes one amount of time to get into the bloodstream, but 30 more minutes than that to reach peak analgesia. If you're paying even closer attention, you'll recall that earlier in the podcast I mentioned that peak central nervous system side effects don't take effect until around the 30 minutes mark after intravenous morphine is administered. And that leads us to mechanism of action. For analgesic effects, morphine has to bind to the mu opioid receptors in the brain, and to do that it must cross the blood-brain barrier. The plasma concentration of morphine remains higher than the cerebral spinal fluid concentration, meaning that you have more morphine floating around in your bloodstream than you do inside your head blocking pain. Because morphine can only cross the blood-brain barrier so fast, it takes a while to reach peak analgesia. Once bound to the mu opioid receptor, morphine causes the neuron to release endorphins that decrease the amount of pain, as well as cause the other associated side effects. Morphine also binds to mu opioid receptors in the spinal cord, peripheral neurons, and the intestinal tract. The most notable side effect of all these is the reduction of GI motility, which causes constipation. While morphine has a higher affinity to mu opioid receptors, 
It can also bind to delta and kappa opioid receptors found in the brain, spinal cord, and peripheral neurons. The different opioid receptors are located in different parts of the brain, with some overlap between them, but we are not going to go into all that now. Some special considerations about morphine. The FDA advises to not give morphine to women who are in or near labor, and morphine can cross into the placenta and cause respiratory depression in newborns. There is also documented evidence that morphine can be present in breast milk. Prolonged use of morphine should be avoided in women who are pregnant due to neonatal withdrawal syndrome, and I couldn't find any literature on short-term use in women who are pregnant. It's not believed to increase risk of birth defects or miscarriage, but those two categories aren't very well studied at this time. Morphine can cause fertility issues in men and women, but it's not known whether those effects are reversible or not. Morphine has been shown to cause adverse reactions with some other drugs. When given with alcohol or other central nervous system depressants including benzodiazepines such as Valium, Xanax, and Ativan, it causes increased risk of respiratory depression or hypotension. It also increases the risk of respiratory depression in patients who are taking muscle relaxers. I haven't seen stats on the use of muscle relaxers in the military, but by far the most common ones I've seen used in the military are cyclobenzaprine and methocarbamol. I also want to point out that Keterlac is not a muscle relaxer. A lot of medics that I've met seem to think that it is. Morphine, when given with a wide variety of antidepressant medications such as SSRIs, MAOIs, and SNRIs, can cause serotonin syndrome. This can manifest in mood or behavioral changes, sweating, hyperthermia, tachycardia, diarrhea, nausea, muscle twitching, and tremors. While not a complete list of those types of medications, the most common ones that I've ran across are tramadol, trazodone, mirtazapine, duloxetine, and defexor. Given with diuretics, commonly referred to as water pills, morphine increases the chance of hypotension. The use of morphine and anticholinergenic drugs such as ipratropium also increases the risk of constipation. For the sake of being thorough, the FDA mentions one report of a reported reaction between morphine and cimetidine resulting in respiratory and central nervous system depression. I've got to let you know before I started looking up all the stuff about morphine to make this podcast, I didn't know what cimetidine even was. It's important to note that none of these known interactions mentioned here at the end of the podcast with morphine and other drugs constitute contraindications. There are things to be cognizant of so that you can reduce the dosage of morphine if needed and also let your patient know what's going on. I want to reiterate that all patients that are given morphine should be continuously monitored for respiratory problems and other side effects. Anyways, that's all I have for this episode. Don't forget to check back periodically, and thanks for listening to Doc, not Doctor.